We all have a yearning for love, but relationships can be confusing and complicated. Dr. Tammy Balashevsky says it all starts from within. It starts with a journey to center. Here's your host for Journey to Center on Empower Radio, Dr. Tammy Balashevsky. Hello, my good friend. I'm so honored to be spending part of our day together here on Empower Radio. You know, in the complex world of love and relationships, you've probably heard the saying, opposites attract. Perhaps this has been true for you. And I would say this is certainly the case for my husband and me. I'm an artist and an idealist, a creative and optimistic dreamer. He calls me a butterfly and a unicorn. My husband's a logical realist and a businessman who loves an Excel spreadsheet numbers. I call him a warrior and a dragon. I'm spatial, he's linear. I'm more social, and he's more of a loner. I often say I'm a right-brainer, and he's a left-brainer. We help each other stretch out of our comfort zones and open our minds to different ways of being and seeing the world, which I've grown to truly love and appreciate. And this is part of the reason I love doing this show, so I can interview people who help me expand in what I think I know and go higher in my understanding and awareness of what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. So I'm super excited to have a thought-provoking conversation and maybe toss aside all the things I thought I knew about left brain versus right brain propensities, activities, and responsibilities. We are getting ready to glean the wisdom from the author of the book, The Left Brain Speaks, The Right Brain Laughs, a look at the neuroscience of innovation and creativity in art, science, and life. We are here with Dr. Ransom Stevens. Dr. Stevens is a physicist, science writer, and novelist. He has written over 400 articles on subjects ranging from neuroscience to quantum physics to parenting teenagers. In his new book, The Left Brain Speaks, The Right Brain Laughs, it's an irreverent yet accurate look at the neuroscience with an emphasis on innovation in art, science, and life. Dr. Stevens has given thousands of speeches across the U.S., Europe, and Asia, and has developed a reputation for making complex topics comprehensive, entertaining, fun, and funny. So, Dr. Stevens, thank you for saying yes to this conversation here today on Journey to Center. Thank you for inviting me, Tammy. I really appreciate it. Me too. I just love stretching out my brain. So, I want to start with the title of your book. It's so fun. The left brain speaks, the right brain laughs. What does this mean and how did you come up with this? So the way I came up with it was a little mundane. I I gave a list of of title ideas to the publisher and she picked the one she liked the most. Um, So what it comes from is, is this. The way when I thought of it, it came to my mind, such as it is, was that the left brain is the part of our brains, for most people anyway, certainly the vast majority of, of people who are right-handed and uh, the majority of left-handed people too, but not quite as vast a majority. The left brain is the one that speaks. So the left brain tells the jokes. But the right brain is the one that gets the jokes, that, that peels off that lateral thought. You know, when you tell a joke, the joke goes along some mundane path. And then the punchline takes it in a surprising direction. And it is the right brain that gets it, that, that sees that it's gone off the rails. And then between the two of them, the left brain and the right brain 
men start laughing when they realize the absurdity of the punchline. But the actual laughter emanates, most of us, from the left brain. So it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit marketing jargon. I might have had the, the title be um, left to my own devices, desire for pure accuracy. That would be instead the left brain tells the joke, the right brain gets the joke, and then the left brain actually does the har har harring of the laughter. Yeah, and for most of us, that might start to get a little complex. <laughs> not, not very, not very marketing. Yeah, not not very good marketing choice. <laughs> <charge. laughs> I I like it. I like it. So, would you say, Ransom, that I w- I'm a little simplistic in my views? My husband's a numbers guy. I'm an artist. He's more of like a science of life guy, and I'm more of like I love beauty. I love you know um, joy. I love butterflies. Am I being simplistic? Is there something to this? You know, I watched Jill Bolte Taylor's interview or uh, talk on um, YouTube and TED Talk about left brain versus right brain. Um, would you state it differently? Would you expand on that? What are your thoughts? Well, essentially, there you know, neuroscience is, is a brand new science. Uh, it's it's at the point where where physics was when Ben Franklin was out flying kites. So it's, it's new. So everything we know about neuroscience is a simplification. And the concept that your right brain is your inner artist and your left brain is your inner accountant came about in the 1960s from some perfectly, you know, perfectly valid research that showed that the left brain tends to inhibit signals from the right brain. And if you inhibit the inhibitions, then people tend to be more creative. So there's a germ of truth to it. But as we've learned more, we have to, you know, expand our oversimplifications and have an all-new oversimplification. So what's really going on is something more like this, that, that your, your left brain is, is more like your fascinated child, the part of you that will, will go off on fantasies and maybe even, you know, focus way in on something and maybe misinterpret it and overlook the, overlook the forest for the trees, to use a cliché. Well, your right brain is looking out for you. It's like you're in the indulgent parent who's watching out, watching out for the, the left brain's um, um, fascinated child. So there's still a germ of truth to the inner accountant, inner artist, but let's expand it. It needs to be expanded because there's no art, art being creative without both hands on deck. Lateral mm-hmm. thought really involves both. It's, it's frequently very literal. And it's lateralness in communication between the two lobes of the brain. So there's a germ of truth to it. But your husband, he's got a lot of right brain going on when he's able to correct his course and to identify violations of rules, for example. The right brain does most of that sort of work. And Mm -hmm. your left brain is a part of you that fantasizes. So eh, never any problem to update your oversimplifications. No, I don't mind at all, like, stretching out both of my lobes. I think this is fantastic. Lobe exercise. (laughs) Exercising the, and you said this, the biggest muscle we have or the most important muscle we have. I haven't thought of the brain in that way, but I guess it is. Well, it doesn't flex quite the same way as our other muscles, but it's got a lot of current (laughs) running through it. A lot of, you know, it's it's where the action happens. Exactly. That I, I definitely agree with. So you have a way of explaining things in the beginning of your book that you go through the book with it. And um, you say our brains evolved from the bottom up, the prehistoric, the primitive, and the genius. And you call them the inner frog, the puppy, and the Richard Feynman. 
Do you want to tell me more about that? Sure. So uh, historically, uh, this is called the triune model of the brain, and it is, of course, another oversimplification. So we have to be careful with it and use it as a metaphor more than as a model. But the idea is pretty simple. There's this reptilian part of your brain, the part of the brain that we share with pretty much every other animal that crawls around. And so that's your brainstem and your cerebellum. That's the part of you that takes care of your breathing, your heart rate, your sweating, um, your balance, and your ability to move around. A lot of the things that you do without even the tiniest thought. It also, uh, it also puts expressions on your face at very rapid, very rapid speeds. Things like, you know, disgust and, and joy. Uh, it, it, it posts those up for all to see. And then, at a higher level, is your inner puppy. And this is something we share with all of the mammals and, most in, and birds in a kind of different way. And your inner puppy is the part of you that handles your emotions and memory and really the heavy lifting of being a mammal. So the inner puppy is kind of in charge of your, your 4F region, the fight, flight, freeze, or mate section. That's the amygdala. And so... The inner puppy is the part of you that handles feelings and emotions. And it's also the part of you that responds. It's when you hit the brakes, that's your inner puppy seeing the trouble and jumping on the brake. But the part of us that we often cherish the most is the part that does the abstracting, the part that does the thinking, the part that we like to think of as being rational and reasonable. And it is rational and reasonable, but it's, it's holding the leash of the puppy, or sometimes really the puppy is holding the leash of this neocortex. And I call that your inner Richard Feynman, because, well, Feynman was the, the greatest American physicist of the 20th century. And so the part of your brain that does your quantum mechanics, that's your inner Feynman. Ah. Okay, you're making things make sense. So you wrote something that I found to be fascinating, and I did not know this. Babies are born with two or three times more synapse connections than three-year-olds. And so we, we, we come in with a lot of brain activity. Is that what you're saying? And then it's pared down? Yeah. Isn't that a trip? I had no idea. I, I knew that babies' brains are born smooth, and then by the time they're a year old, they have the grooves in them. So um, you're kind of blowing my mind with this information. What, what does yeah, it mean? it blew me away. So what's yeah, going to be happening is that, is that when we're infants, right, right out of the gate, so to speak, the, there's, um, yeah, two to three times more neural connections in our brains. And what seems to be happening is that, right, the first thing we have to do to determine, to build a model of what reality is, is to process our sensory input. So we have the five senses, um, sight, sound, taste, smell, and um, touch, you could add in balance if you want and a few other sorts of things, but they're all inputs from the outer world. So the thinking is that infants can't quite discriminate those different senses, that they're born with all these connections, and then they have to start interpreting the world. And as they interpret the world, the extra connections get pruned away. They get snipped away. They evaporate, essentially, until they're able to conceive the world and recognize a, a light incoming into their eyes as distinct from a smell in, in coming into their nose or a sound. 
So they get trimmed away, and it's, yeah, it blew me away finding out about neural pruning. It's also called neural Darwinism because those things that, that aren't selected to have use go away. Hmm. Fascinating. And again, you know, it's, uh, I love continuing to uh, learn and open my mind and, and be like uh, the beginner's mind. So, yeah, you're kind of blowing my mind a little, <laughs> but I like it. Yeah, me too. I so, love that. I learned so much fun? writing this book. It was really, really awesome. Yeah, it's really fun to keep stretching it. Um, so we, it seems we're definitely more um, able to be creative as children than adults. Why, why is this? Well, we're certainly open to more ideas. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why, why children, well, children are just open to more ideas. So they're prejudiced against fewer ideas. And so here's how, here's how it seems to work. Um, adults, you and me, everybody listening, and by adults, I'm going to include 10-year-olds, uh, but all of <laughs> us who have some expertise, who have lived in the world for a decade or more, we're experts in some things. We know how certain things work, and that's given to us by experience. But when we are experts, we also know what doesn't work. And so rightfully, you know, rightfully so, some ideas we just reject because we know they don't work. But that also tends to expand that we reject ideas from fields where we're not experts or ideas that might work, but, you know, we're just prejudiced against them because that sort of concept hasn't worked for us in the past. So when you're not burdened, if you will, by experience, then your mind tends to be open to more ideas and you try them. So to be creative, really frequently we, we need to quiet our inhibitions and let some ideas percolate into consciousness that we otherwise might not. Mm. Oh, yeah, we have to surrender what we think we know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. It, because one of the things that, that I found out is that, well, your brain has a lot going on in it. We're only conscious of, at most, three to seven, maybe ten concepts at one time. But meanwhile, all around your brain, there's all kinds of stuff going on. You're processing all, your, all the inputs from your senses. You're building them into images and combining information from the different senses. You know, you're assembling, if you look at your dog, you assemble what you see, what you hear, and what you smell. <laughs> and, and so there's a lot going on in your brain that you're not aware of. So one of the things that happens is that we, we reject ideas even before we're conscious of them. So to beat that back and to entertain the full host of ideas that our brains are capable of delivering us and get those major insights, those huge innovations and great creations that can solve the big problems we face both individually and as groups and as nations and as a species, Mm-hmm. We really need mm-hmm. to we really need to try to reduce those inhibitions so that we can listen to all of the strengths that our brains can provide us. Mm-hmm. I love that. So you said something I hadn't thought of um, before either. You say as humans, we perceive things by recognizing patterns. And when we recognize patterns, we can get lazy. Is that kind of what you're talking about here? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, and you really read my book. I love that. 
<laughs> I like to, uh, yeah, I like to learn. I like to be responsible. I like to connect and communicate and expand. So I did, and I enjoyed right. it very much. Well, thank you. So yeah, this is the thing. So the way we the way we think is that we we search for patterns and we recognize patterns whether they exist or not. If you show a group of people a completely random distribution of dots and then compare it and then ask them to compare it with a distribution of very well-organized dots that are flat, that are uniform, and ask, ask which has a pattern and which doesn't, they'll almost always pick the one that doesn't have a pattern, the one that's truly random. We find patterns where they don't exist, and it's a, it's a feature of our brains that helps us survive. Because if you make a mistake when you identify something, you're more likely to survive after you've run away from, you know, wind in the leaves than if you make a mistake by missing it, by not recognizing the pattern. Mm -hmm. So in order, in order for us to perceive the present, we build up our experiences of the past and we categorize them into things that we understand. And from that, we have context for the present, for, for the present, and then we predict the future, the immediate future. If you don't have any expectations of what's going to happen next, you couldn't complete a sentence, right? I predict that I'll still be on the phone with you in the next several minutes, or at least the next 10 seconds. So I'm going to keep thinking about what would come next. But in the process, we have, I sort of think of it as, um, I don't know, like a filing cabinet of ideas, folders, where we want to put the different patterns we recognize. Mm -hmm. And the fewer of those folders we have, the lazier we are and the greater our prejudices. I mean, prejudices in the largest sense, not just bigotry, but also prejudices against ideas. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about there, this concept of idea prejudice that holds us back in many ways. And, and it's sort of the, yeah, I call it the, it's like the consultant's dilemma. You're going to have mm. a good, fast, or cheap pick two and natural <laughs> selection and its zeal to keep us breathing and reproducing chose cheap and fast, efficient mm -hmm. and fast. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're bringing up a good point. I'm, I'm looking forward to picking your brain a little bit, so to speak, uh, so that I might continue to expand. I feel like we're kind of, as human beings, hardwired to survive. But it's sort of like if we want to thrive, if we want to go higher in our consciousness, if we want to expand and live more fulfilling lives, we have to um, do more than just um, rely on our hardwiring. We have to be able to um, access different parts of ourselves. I'm a hypnotherapist, so I do a lot of work with guided meditations and the subconscious mind. What would you say, what kinds of suggestions might you give me or our listeners about going to the next level of, of consciousness and thriving? Well, we are hard. Well, I see we're not quite hardwired. It's close. We're certainly, mm -hmm. we certainly are, we are, we emerge with a, with a tendency to do what would help a cave person survive. Right. And that's not necessarily helpful for making a civilization survive, of course. Uh -huh, so uh -huh. hopefully we're not too hardwired that we destroy ourselves. Certainly possible. But 
So here's, you know, and I don't, I don't have the answer, but this is what I, the direction I think we need to go. If we think about the extremes of this, this pattern recognition, our tendency to categorize things without thinking of them, you know, we see something and we immediately stash it in a category and don't think about it. And that's what, what I mean when I say that we tend to be lazy or efficient, mm-hmm. uh, if not good, is that we tend to not go for the nuance. So if you have somebody who only has two categories, that something is either light or dark, then everything's going to look light or dark. At the other extreme, if you have somebody who actually, you know, really analyzes everything, and it's for whatever reason, in not, not really humanly possible, but is capable of doing a thorough analysis of every stimulus that they come across, so that everything is unique and they don't have any categories or equivalently, they have separate categories for every possible thing. Well, you and me, we're in between those somewhere. And the person with the infinite number of categories, well, they're not going to have any prejudices at all. They're going to entertain everything that they see as completely new and unique. Now, if a cave person were to do that, they'd be dead pretty quick because it just takes too long. But in civilization, we have, usually we have time to, to entertain things. So I think that the issue really is to increase the number of categories that we have. And to do that, it's pretty simple. And it is education. And I mean education in the broadest sense. Certainly, you know, lectures and classes and things, but also, you know, the School of Hard Knocks and and experiencing cultural processes and really trying to see as many, exposing ourselves to as many patterns as possible so that then we don't leap to the wrong conclusion, so that we don't make the wrong prejudices. We're going to make prejudices. It's just the way our brains work. But hopefully we make the right ones and we don't get lazy and just stash things in a category because it's easier and overlook the nuance, something that, you know, and miss something special. We only punish, well, <laughs> we punish ourselves more than others when we, when we succumb to our own prejudices. That's interesting. Huh. There's so much to think about. I'm, you know, I'm just so excited that I get you on for another show for next week because I, there's so many questions that I have for you, and I'm really excited about continuing it. And I just want to tell my listeners, if you're at all intrigued by this conversation, like I am, um, his book, The Left Brain Speaks, The Right Brain Laughs, is, is really a fun and interesting read. So, Ransom, can you tell people how to get a copy of your book or connect with you? The, the Left Brain Speaks, The Right Brain Laughs should be available you know, it should be available anywhere you go to get books, certainly at that giant bookstore in the interwebs, but also hopefully at the bookstore down the street. And if they don't have it, they can get it, and they should have it. And if you don't want to part with the cash, go down to your library and ask them to get a copy if they don't already have one. Libraries will order books if you ask them to. So, it, yeah, you can get it, and you can get it for free if you go to the library. And if you want your own copy to mark up, then... Um, yeah, you can get it in print, ebook. It's in audio as well. So there's my marketing pitch. I love it. I, I invite it. And there's some interesting stuff on your website as well. You've written other kinds of books. You're very kind of a diverse and interesting and creative guy. So I would definitely suggest um, going to his website. So can you do a shout out 
for that, Dr. Stevens? Oh, yeah. So I've written two novels. The God Patent is set in the science, religion, culture war. And the sensory deception is, um, is a story of three Silicon Valley scientists and one um, venture capitalist scout who combine their efforts to try, to try to rescue the world from itself by recruiting environmentalists through virtual reality. You know, they're both novels, so they're really about inter- interactions between people and um, some of the characters in them people really like, and I do too. Uh, so, you know, you can find out about all this stuff on, on the website, ransomstevens.com, or uh, my Amazon page has, has a lot of information and direct links to everything too. So, Ransom, R-A-N-S-O-M, like kidnapping, and Stevens with a P-H-S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S. Ransom Stevens. And are you on Facebook? Are you on Instagram? Are you out there doing social media at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly on Facebook. I will welcome your friendship on Facebook. And um, yeah, Ransom Stevens there. And on Twitter, at Ransom Stevens. I like to goof around on Twitter. So in our conversation, I guess we'll wait wait till next week to, to talk about curating your life. We don't do that time now. Oh, yeah, we've got about 60 seconds, so we kind of don't. But if you've enjoyed this conversation as much as me, join us for our next conversation next week or the next lineup in our podcasts where we're going to go more into creativity, how to unlock it, the benefits of meditation, a lot more fun, interesting, thought-compelling, provoking conversations here with Dr. Ransom Stevens. And to my listeners, thank you for spending time with us here today and if you want more you again we've got tons of podcasts go to my website tammy b phd download my guided meditation my intention is really to be in relationship i think we're in this together so god bless you know you're in my heart and prayers onward and upward bye for now